the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 7. ESG scorecard dropped by Standard & Poor's. Talking with Professor Tom Lyon, Dow Chair of Sustainable Science, Technology, and Commerce, University of Michigan. Our guest today is Tom Lyon, professor at the Ross School of Business and the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. Hello, Tom, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Tom, please take a few moments to share your biography and your work at the University of Michigan. Sure, Jim. Let me see if I can give you a short version. At University of Michigan, I have this unusual position in that my appointment is between the School of Business and the School for Environment and Sustainability. That's quite unusual Mm because most people feel like those two worlds are very separate, if not diametrically opposed. And in fact, many of our students seem to feel that way. So our business (laughs) students think sustainability, do I really have to know about that? And the sustainability students think, oh, business, that's the root of all evil. And so having a position that goes between the two is really kind of unusual, but puts me in a very interesting position to think about a lot of timely issues. And what I mostly think about are the factors that motivate companies to become more sustainable, and then also whether their efforts to do so are really making any difference. And I've been doing this for probably about 25 years now, thinking about these set of topics. Mm. And I remember years ago, the way I got started on this whole track was that I was at Indiana University at the time, and my colleague, John Maxwell, came down the hall and poked his head in my office and said, well, did you read the latest issue of the Federal Reserve Newsletter? And I had to confess that I hadn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But he said, well, there's a very interesting story about the Council of the Great Lakes Industries. They're reducing their pollution into the Great Lakes beyond what's required by law. Why would they do that? Because, you know, 20 years ago, economists thought what companies do is they take the regulations as given and they comply with them. But why why over comply? Mm -hmm. That's just going to be costly. And it set us off down a path of inquiry that has been so interesting that I've continued on it for the last 25 years. And it's really been quite fascinating. There's there's an enormous number of things that drive companies to become greener, mm-hmm. including government regulation, but what things consumers want to buy, investor pressures, social movement actions, boycotts and protests. So there's a whole range of interesting factors. And then there are real questions as to whether the things companies do to improve their performance are really making a substantial difference or whether they're fairly shallow, and maybe even just greenwash. And so that itself is a fascinating set of inquiries. So anyway, that broad set of things is what I focus on. And then at University of Michigan, I'm also privileged to be the faculty director of something we call the Herb Institute Mm -hmm. for Global Sustainable Enterprise that brings together two schools and sponsors a variety of educational programs, research efforts, and business engagement. Very impressive. Tom, ESG, or Environmental, Social, and Governance, 
as an investment framework has been in the news throughout 2023. Tell us about Standard & Poor's move to eliminate its ESG scorecard, which was introduced in 2021. And what exactly is the scorecard? Sure. Um, let's take a slightly longer-term perspective because ES and G factors have been included in investor evaluations of companies for at least two decades now. And the first set of these were the KLD ratings, Kinder, Leidenberg, and Dominique. And they were a fairly simple set of ratings on strengths and concerns for different companies. But those guys were really the first ones out of the box. And then over the last 10 years, 15 years, there's been growing investor interest. And there are a whole host of different ratings entities out there. And they've been bought up and acquired by larger and larger companies as interest has grown in this area. So S&P Global is one of the raters, but Moody's, Refinitiv, Sustainalytics, uh, there are a whole series of others. So anyway, S&P Global had a very simple rating scheme from one to five on each of the three categories, environment, uh, social, and governance, mm -hmm. with one being good and five being terrible. And they would write qualitative verbal descriptions about ESG risk. And then they rate each company on a score of one to five for each of these three categories. And what they've done is announced as of Friday last week at the end of the day. So they were clearly trying to miss the news cycle. Uh -huh. They announced that they were no longer going to use the numerical ratings on their evaluations of fixed income investments. So they didn't say they were going to quit using numbers on all investments, but they're going to stop using numerical evaluations on their debt investments. They will continue to have a verbal narrative to describe ESG risks, but they won't put numbers on it. Tom, what is the practical impact to corporate America and to investors of this move by S&P? We have many investors today who are very conscious about ESG framework. So what do you think the impact of this dropping the scorecard is going to be for both investors and for corporate managers? I think this particular thing in and of itself will have very little impact. There are lots of other ratings that investors can use, and they can continue to read the narrative description that S&P offers. So I don't think the sky is falling or any big impact is going to come from this. But I see it as more interestingly a canary in the coal mine sort of moment. And you can interpret why they did this in various different ways, and they you know, might tell you something about it, but who knows what the real reason is. I have my own suspicions, and mm -hmm. you know, when I heard about this last Saturday morning, I guess, my immediate thought was, well, let's see if Ken Paxton had anything to do with this. So Ken Paxton is an attorney general for the state of Texas. He's mm -hmm. a Republican. He is, by the way, uh, under investigation for 22 counts of corruption. The Republican legislature in Texas is very close to impeaching the man. So I think anything he says has to be taken with an enormous grain of salt. He's uh -huh. clearly not a guy that is known for being trustworthy. But anyway, I'll, I googled Ken Paxton and immediately that pops up. So Ken was part of a multi-state investigation that was led by the Missouri Attorney General, Republican Eric Schmidt. 
but Eric doesn't make as big a deal about it online. Ken Paxton is the one who kind of brags about it, even though he didn't initiate this investigation. But they've been going after a whole series of companies that are using ESG criteria. And their claim is that somehow this is bad for consumers, that companies shouldn't be allowed to think about ESG impacts because somehow that will hurt consumers. And I think the implicit theory is that, well, investing in ESG is trying to save the world and costing me money in the process. And so companies should be fixated on short-term share prices rather than thinking about long-term planetary well-being. And the problem with that reasoning is that it is often in the financial interests of investors to think about the long-term planetary well-being that their companies might benefit from. There's not much substance to these claims as far as I can tell. I mean, my sense is at worst, ESG ratings are noisy and may not be terribly informative, but the reason companies use them is they want to make more money Mm -hmm. by being able to forecast future environmental penalties and violations. Because penalties and violations are really costly for a firm. Like imagine if you could have predicted that BP was going to have the Deepwater Horizon disaster and you could have short sold BP or you could have just dumped all your shares in advance. You would have saved an enormous amount of money because that was a very, very expensive disaster for BP. And so what investors are trying to do is get some advance warning on whether companies are going to have these sorts of disasters on their hands. Mm -hmm. Leaving aside the acronym ESG, a well-run corporation and its board of directors are going to be considering a universe of issues that impact their particular company, their business, their business strategy, the people who work for them, whether you subscribe or you don't subscribe to the ESG framework, good corporate managers and boards of directors have to be on top of issues like this and have always been on top of issues like this just out of good governance of a company. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, you don't have any perfect measure of whether a company is well-run and well-governed. And so you seek out any kind of information that might give a clue about that. And I think many people do consider ES&G criteria to be indicators of overall good management. But, you know, you can also think of them as indicators of more specific forms of good management with regard to those three criteria. And I should say it's a little bit odd to lump the three together because they're very different. Yes. Environmental issues are very different from social issues. And as you were just suggesting, governance, in some sense, is an umbrella above both of them and above everything else that the company does. So there are a lot of people that would argue we shouldn't add up ESG scores. We should, at the minimum, treat each of those dimensions as a separate and important thing. Has ESG unwittingly become a victim of the culture wars in our polarized political environment? Oh, yes. Very, very much so. You know, most of your listeners and most Americans probably don't think very much about ESG criteria. Very wealthy individuals with 
serious portfolios to manage are the ones that are typically taking this into account. And so you get your big asset managers like BlackRock. They're the ones that really have been in the news the most for using ESG criteria. And Ken Paxton and the um, other 18 Republican attorneys general that have sent a letter to Larry Fink at BlackRock have demanded information about how they're using ESG criteria, suggesting that investors are somehow colluding. Hundreds of investors or thousands of investors around the world are colluding to reduce investments in fossil fuels. And, you know, collusion's hard to do. And the notion that thousands of investors will collude together on something that wouldn't be profitable for them kind of strains credulity. So the, the attacks, I think, are much more of a political football than they are a real indicator of interesting investment information. And you kind of have to wonder, why have these things emerged all of a sudden? And they, they emerged right around the same time that politicians like Ron DeSantis started turning the campaign against wokeness, whatever he thinks that is, into a political football. And now they've rolled ESG into the same political football that they treat as woke. And so it just becomes a big, ill-defined thing that is clearly bad, and we can't really explain why. But, you know, you, you look at Ken Paxson's statement about why they're doing this investigation. Too many consumers of investors have been hurt by the woke ESG movement's obsession with radical social change and willingness to ignore the law. ESG investors are not interested in radical social change. These are just right. people that want to make more money. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Long before ESG became a thing, we always have had shareholder activists in the United States. I mean, 30 some, 30, 35, 40 years ago, we had the Sullivan principles where shareholder act, uh, shareholder activists were looking closely at South African investment policies on the part of uh, corporate America. And as a result of those pressures, many U.S. companies divested from holdings in South Africa, for instance. I myself served on a, on a board of a, a Catholic hospital here in the Bay Area many years ago, and the good nuns who ran the, who managed the hospital, had very clear directives in terms of what we should or shouldn't invest in, what they called the, the sin stocks. They didn't want us, they didn't think that their company, their hospital, should be investing in tobacco, uh, arms, uh, abortifacients, uh, that sort of thing. Now, so that kind of shareholder activism and interest on the part of shareholders in directing management that's been around for a long time, and I, I certainly don't recall back in the 1980s or 1990s that there was such a that there was a, a hue and cry about that kind of activism. So how why have we evolved? And so I guess uh, you're you're saying it's 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 political at this point. I think it is very political. Yeah, I, you're totally right. The Sullivan principles are a great example. And, you know, different people differ in their assessment of whether divestment per se is a useful strategy, because some people will argue you're more effective to remain invested and use your voice within the company, especially if you're a large shareholder, to try to change the company's behavior. And I think at the time with South African divestment, there was 
that same debate that went on. And that's a debate that, you know, reasonable investors can have and people can take different points of view. But I think what we're seeing with these anti-ESG attacks is really something quite different. It's hard to know what's happening because so much money is what's called dark money. Now, after Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision that decided money was speech, um, companies and individuals can give unlimited amounts of money to certain kinds of political entities, and they can do it anonymously. So it's very hard to trace. But there's an interesting group in Washington, D.C. called the Center for Political Accountability. And those folks released a report a year or so ago called Practical Stake. And they traced out the funding for a group called the Republican Attorney General's Association, RAGA. And RAGA is really interesting because these 19 Republican attorneys general that are going after ESG are funded by, supported by this fundraising entity, RAGA. One of the other things RAGA did was to create robocalls calling people to Washington, D.C. for the January 6th insurrection. So these guys have a very, very political agenda, and they receive very large contributions from groups like the Chamber of Commerce, which gave around $700,000 last year, Walmart, Comcast, Verizon, a whole host of big business organizations fund RAGA. And I'm not sure if they know really what they're funding. And either way, it's interesting. If they don't know what they're funding, then they're in real political peril because their customers, their investors may discover that you know, these people are funding a very polarizing political organization. On the other hand, if they do know what they're doing, they're kind of hypocritical because a lot of these companies like to talk about how concerned they are about their stakeholders and they believe in stakeholder capitalism. But if you're funding a group that's trying to undermine stakeholder capitalism by preventing investors from even thinking about ESG, then you're speaking out of two different sides of your mouth at once. You know, Tom, before we came on the air, we were talking about ESG as an American phenomenon. Of course, it's it's not ESG framework and considerations where it actually began in Europe, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. And are European investors and Europe, European corporate managers as obsessed with ESG as we seem to be here in the United States, or is this a purely an American phenomenon? Europeans are just as concerned with ESG as Americans, probably more so. Where this all started is an interesting question. Uh, there's a group called Ceres that's a nonprofit based in Boston that launched something called the Global Reporting Initiative in the United States some 20 years ago, it later moved to Amsterdam as a base. So mm. it seemed like a European thing, but it actually was launched here in America. And the, the Global Reporting Initiative is still the most widely used framework for reporting on what you could call ESG issues. And GRI is very interesting, not to get too far into the weeds for your listeners, but GRI tries to measure what's the impact of a company on society, on the planet? Is the company doing good things, bad things, a mix? And so GRI takes a very different perspective than ESG 
reporting. So this is an important distinction. GRI is concerned about the impact of the company on the world. ESG is concerned about the impact of the world on the company's bottom line. So ESG is really all about making money. Impact is about trying to make the world better with your investment money. So if Ken Paxton and the Republican attorneys general want to attack some sorts of investors, they should really be attacking impact investors. But, you know, it seems kind of crazy to be attacking people that are trying to make the world better using their investment dollars. Do you think that the dropping of the scorecard is another sort of indicator to corporate managers, to boards of directors, that they they should perhaps slow down their ESG framework? Will this action by Standard & Poor's have a chilling effect, is my question, on the corporate investor, the corporate investor world, the corporate management world, in terms of ensuring that ESG frameworks and standards continue to be implemented and adopted by leading companies in America? There's definitely some chilling effect that's happening. And you've seen Larry Fink backpedal from some of his strongest statements about ESG investing. But at the same time, what I hear from everybody in this space is we're not abandoning use of ESG criteria because we think they're useful. And so whatever's happening politically, we might talk about it less, but we're going to keep doing what we're doing because we think it makes more money for us. So I don't think fundamentally it's really going to change things. Going back to your comment about the European world versus the U.S. world, one of the things that's coming down the pipe that will affect U.S. companies as well as Europeans is that the EU has created a new corporate sustainability reporting directive that's going to require companies to report a whole series of ESG indicators, Mm -hmm. including carbon emissions of scope one, two, and three. And for people not steeped in the nerdiness of scopes, scope one is the direct emissions that come from your operations at your facilities. Scope two is the emissions from electricity you purchased. And scope three is emissions from the products you create. So for an automobile maker, for example, scope three is really important because most of the emissions are coming from operating the vehicle Mm -hmm. or for an oil company most of the emissions come from consuming the product in scope three so the eu is going to require companies to report on all three of these scopes and if you're an american company and you do more than 150 million euros a year of business in the eu you have to comply by these rules too so american companies can't just sit back and act like they are not part of the global business world. Unless they're very small and just do business in America, they have to keep in mind the global set of business regulations. And ESG issues are just not going away for larger global companies. On campus, when you, at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that on the one hand, you're a professor at the business school, On the other hand, you're also a professor at the School of Sustainability, and you're right. The students at the business school and the students at the School of Sustainability are probably looking at the world through two very different lenses, perhaps even and often in disagreement with each other. Given the fact that the students that you're 
teaching, who are who are at the business school and at the School of Sustain, Sustainability, they're the future leaders of corporate America. They're the future managers, the boards of directors, etc. Where where do they stand? Because they're the future. They're the individuals who are going to be the ones who continue to implement ESG standards and uh, perhaps take it to the next level. What are you observing for this new generation, which is at your business school and your school of sustainability as regards ESG frameworks and standards? Well, I'm seeing a difference even between our undergraduates and our MBA students. And they're not separated by that many years of age, but you know, maybe 10, maybe nine. Um, the undergrads come in and they are just all over this stuff. Mm-hmm. They know the climate is burning up. They feel cheated. They feel like they're being handed a start in life where they're going to have to solve the problems that the previous generations have dumped in their lap. Mm -hmm. And so they're very alert. They're very concerned about and aware of corporate greenwashing. They've got antennae that are really hypersensitive to these kinds of things. They're already on to things like corporate political responsibility. Does a company lobby behind closed doors for things that it says it opposes publicly. So they're very attuned. The MBAs are a little bit behind that, I would say. Now, we've had a very special program at the Herb Institute for 25 years. It's a dual degree program where students can get an MBA degree mm-hmm. and an MS in environment and sustainability. And they do it in a three-year period instead of the normal four. And those students are special people. They're wonderful people. They're farsighted. They're taking the long view. They want to use business to make the planet a better place. And one of the things that's been interesting the last few years is that the starting salaries for those guys are actually higher than the starting salaries for average MBAs coming out without the additional degree. Mm -hmm. So the market recognizes the value of this kind of expertise. And I think it's just increasingly going to because we have a lot of challenges to deal with and business has a very important role to play in solving those challenges. Well, Tom, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts for our listeners on this issue of the environmental, social, and governance scorecard and Standard & Poor's action? Well, I'll take a moment to make a shameless pitch for (laughs) a new executive education program that we're currently creating with Ceres. So the Ross School of Business and series together are creating an online executive education program called Building Board Expertise on Sustainability. So board members are increasingly under pressure to understand ESG issues. They have to be able to navigate this backlash against ESG and understand how ESG can be used to predict risks and foresee future opportunities. So we see a growing demand for just understanding what's going on in this really complicated and unfortunately polarized environment. I don't think any of this is going away. And I think what people need to do is just educate themselves, figure out what's real and learn to separate the reality from the chaff. That's the kind of political conversation that is going on in the background. Well, Tom, how can our listeners follow you? I'm on LinkedIn. It's very easy to find me there. And I've been posting about our new uh, exec ed program, but other things that I think are interesting and happening in, in the ESG space. 
so that's probably the easiest way to find me. Mm-hmm. You can also Google the Herb Institute at University of Michigan and find out about our programs and our business engagement opportunities. Do you have a, an X handle or, as it used to be known, a Twitter handle? I do. I don't tweet all that much. And with Elon Musk kind of turning Twitter into a bit of a different place, I don't use it all that much. Um, I find LinkedIn a much more civil, business-like, professional kind of environment. So I tend to put most of my social media activity there. Mm -hmm. And Tom, just in closing, when do classes resume at Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan? August 28th. We're starting before Labor Day this year. Oh, very good. Well, listen, I won't take up more of your time. Again, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck on August 28th. And uh, hopefully many of your existing students and future students will have an opportunity to listen to this podcast. And uh, again, thank you for joining us and shedding light on this Standard & Poor's scorecard issue. Jim, it was a lot of fun talking to you. And for our listeners, Today's episode is number 433. The San Francisco Experience is carried on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms, with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently ranked us as one of the top 25 California news podcasts. This has been the San Francisco Experience podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco.